I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. I'm not putting the Bible aside. I just don't need two. I have. Let me ask a question that is good for us to all ask. Who is Jesus? Um, Luke's been letting us in insight into that. Um, in Luke chapter 7, verse 29, the answer the Pharisees and the experts in the law would give is, who cares? Who is Jesus? Nobody special. That seems to be the mantra from our culture. Smile and wave. Doesn't really matter, does it? We might use his name when we hit our finger with a hammer or we might actually call out to him when things go pear-shaped. But who really cares? Who is Jesus? Well, people in our culture who don't follow Jesus as their Lord and Saviour would be happy to say that he was a great prophet or a clever teacher. Mahatma Gandhi says that the things that Jesus said in in, um, Matthew 5, 6 and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is the most profound teaching that anyone's ever given. Now, Mahatma Gandhi's not a Christian. Islam thinks that Jesus is is a prophet. They don't follow Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, I think Luke wants us to see who he is. He's been unpacking this for us. Jesus is the promised Messiah. We've seen Jesus as the giver of God's great, lavish, undeserved grace. The one who forgives. The one who restores us back into right relationship with God. Luke wants Theophilus to know with certainty who Jesus is. Uh, Luke wants us to know with certainty who Jesus is because Jesus calls us to hear him and obey him. You will not obey Jesus if you've got doubts about who he is. Who is Jesus? Here's a bit of an insight for you to test the depth of your own conviction. Do you really have any desire to obey him? We'll be unpacking that a little later on. For the disciples, the discovery of who Jesus was was an ongoing process. We're only up to Luke 8. We are like them. They are slow learners I'll speak for myself, I won't speak for you, I am a slow learner. Today we see more proof of who Jesus is and we're going to see what he says and does but we're going to have confirmation about who Jesus is from the lips of Jesus' most bitter enemy. You see, they have no doubt who Jesus is and they are deeply afraid. How about I pray for us as we look at God's word this morning. Our loving Heavenly Father, help me to be clear. Um, Lord, help us to have our, not just our ears switched on, but our hearts switched on as well. Lord, we want to know you better and we want to be convicted from that knowledge to be people who obey you better. Lord, speak to us this morning, we pray. Amen. 
Well, Jesus, Luke chapter 8, page 1575, if you're following along in these Bibles here. Luke chapter 8, Jesus wakes up and looks like it's a great day to go sailing, a bit like today. Well, maybe not. That's my spin on it. If you read some of the other Gospels, you know that Jesus is pretty exhausted by now. He's been busy all day. It's not the morning, it's the afternoon. But let's think Jesus is going for a picnic. He's going for a picnic to the other side of Lake Galilee. We're not told why he's going. He just tells the disciples, let's go for a sail. Lake Galilee is five miles wide, 13 miles long, and its perils are quite considerable. It's got unique geography. It's First of all, it's a long way below sea level. That's not the bottom of the lake, that's the top of the lakes below sea level. And, and, and it's surrounded by pretty steep mountains. Um, and it's got gorges and ravines along those steep mountains, and, and those ravines serve like a funnel for wind. If you've ever been to the, uh, the Flinders Ranges and you've been in some of those gorges, you know how gorges can become funnels for wind. Well, that's great in the Flinders, but when you're on a boat, on the water, that can be quite upsetting. Uh, the gales that produce the wind also... Uh, have a build-up of heat from the area and it builds up and lifts up and it's extremely low valley. It sucks the cold air violently downward on, on, on the people, on the, those that are on the water. Now, you know the story. In 1992, though, three-metre waves were recorded on Lake Galilee just so you get an idea the sort of waves that could be happening. The boat that Jesus and his disciples are in has been swamped. That's made very clear and the disciples think they're going to drown. They cry out to Jesus. Notice they refer to him as master. Jesus stands up in the boat and rebukes the wind and the waves, the raging waters, and the wind stops and the raging waters go still. If you've ever got a a feeling of grandeur in your life, give that a go in the next big storm. Now, Jesus didn't just time his, his words well. He didn't speak as the eye of the storm came and said, stop perfectly timed, got these guys fooled. The water stopped as well. The waves went calm. The disciples are amazed. They're amazed at what Jesus has just done, you can understand that, but they're fearful. No longer are they fearful of the wind and drowning, they're fearful of who Jesus is. Or to put it more specifically, if they've understood Scripture right, They are fearful of being in Jesus' presence. You know that reading we had from Psalm 107? If you've got your finger in it, flip across, page 888, verse 23. This helps us understand why they are fearful of who Jesus might be. It speaks of people going out in ships in verse 25, a big storm comes up. And the people going up and down in the huge swell and they are fearful and they cry out to the Lord. Now in the NIV, that's L-O-R-D, capitals, that means Yahweh. They cry out to Yahweh and in their trouble, they, um, they are deeply worried and he, Yahweh, brings the raging storm to whisper. And the waves are hushed. Now note very clearly the connection so you and I understand why it is the disciples are fearful that Jesus is in their boat. Jesus has done exactly what Yahweh does. 
No wonder they're wondering who he is and no wonder they are fearful because if they've joined the dots correctly, in their boat is the sovereign Lord of all the universe. Now that's freaking them out. They don't fully understand it, don't worry about that. But in their presence is the one who has the power and authority of Yahweh. And Yahweh is holy and he's sovereign. Now, now Yahweh cares for people. Yahweh loves people with great love and deep mercy. But they know that sinful people like them cannot be in the presence of Yahweh. The wages of sin is death. When people reject God's right to rule right at the very beginning, God casts them out of his presence. Who is this? He commands the wind and the water and they obey him. That's what's going through their head. Now, let me just press a pause button there and ask you, how would you answer that question? And I don't mean the pat religious answer. Just think about life. Do I really think Jesus is who he claims to be? I find the best way for me to give an honest answer is to unpack how I treat him, how I listen to him, whether I relegate him to the sidesteps of life, to the also-ran, or whether I take him seriously. Jesus goes to his picnic place on the other side of the lake with his disciples and we get an answer to the question the disciples are asking. So Jesus steps ashore and he's met by a demon-possessed man. The maloke is stark naked and he's living amongst the tombs. That's not normal. But the most surprising thing about this bloke who's stark naked living amongst the tombs is he, who's been in a solitary place, knows who Jesus is. He has not been reading the latest news feeds. The disciples have been questioning if Jesus, who Jesus is and what are the implications of that. The Pharisees, quite frankly, don't care. But this demon-possessed man knows who Jesus is, which is the reason why Jesus goes to the place and Luke records the story. The man falls at the feet of Jesus and shouts out at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. Why? Because Jesus had just commanded the demons to come out of the bloke. The man who's possessed by demons, by many demons we find out, and the demons ask, please don't send us to the abyss. They request to go to the pigs. Jesus gives them permission to go to the pigs. The pigs end up in the drink and drown, which causes people in our culture to think, oh man, poor animals. But the people of Jesus' day were upset for different reasons. They're thinking, what about my retirement? What about my business? You see, we've got a few problems with this story, but our problems are the wrong problems often. We want to be asking questions like, what's the abyss? Why did, why, did, why did these guys not want to go to the abyss? Now, the abyss is a great title for a movie, but what really is it? Uh, NIV, this, part, this version of the Bible we're using here, and other versions, by the way, uses the word abyss eight times, and it's just really a bottomless pit. It's a bit like a teenager's stomach. 
It's used mostly in the book of Revelation. Uh, it refers to a place where, where people or demons are sent after judgment by God. Now, what we need to understand is it's got a broad understanding of what, a uh, broad wide range of ways it can be used. But here, these guys don't want to go there. It's a place of judgment and destruction. They are desperate not to go there. And what's really worthwhile noticing is that the demons recognize Jesus' authority to judge them, which says something about who Jesus is, doesn't it? Jesus acts with the authority and the power of Yahweh over the demons. So we now know why these, these demons don't want to go to the abyss because they really don't want to get judged by Yahweh. That's fairly obvious. But note that Jesus does not promise not to judge them. Sometimes we can jump the gun in the story. Why did the demons choose pigs? Well, you know what they smell like. No, no, we won't go that way. Why did Jesus allow them to go there? No, we, we don't know an answer to that. Like, why don't we start speculating? You can speculate anything you want to. Feel free to do so. But just remind yourself it's 100% speculation because we're not told. But we do know the fact that there are pigs around, that this is not a bunch of Jewish people there, is it? These are a bunch of Gentiles because Jews don't like pigs. In fact, they're unclean animals. They won't allow them. They won't farm them. So we know that Jesus has gone to a place across the other side of Lake Galilee that is inhabited by non-Jews, by Gentiles. And that's important because later on, what does Jesus tell this bloke to do? Go and tell everyone what God has done for you. So when he goes and tells everyone what God has done for you, he's telling Gentiles about what Jesus has done. We'll touch base on that in just a moment. Just so we don't fall into the trap of over-assuming we know the story, notice we're not told what happens to the demons. Resist the urge to speculate. Jesus has not promised not to judge them, if you can say that without confusing everyone. We can be more concerned with the animals in the story because we live in a culture where it is perfectly okay to abort babies, but we are deeply upset about getting rid of bobby calves. Now, just so you know what a bobby calf is, that lovely milk you drank on breakfast, to keep the milk, uh, the, the calves Keep the cows producing milk. They get them pregnant, have a calf, don't want the calf to take the milk and so they bump them on the head in a nice humane way. And our culture is more interested in the welfare of the animals than it is interested in people. And so we get hung up on the wrong things, don't we? We're not told much about the industry. We're not told much about the future income and the retirement prospects of the people there that's secondary to the story. The, ca- the locals' attention is captured and so they come out, remember a bunch of Gentiles have come out to see for themselves who Jesus is. And what they see is a man that they could not restrain, who they knew was demon-possessed, sitting quietly at the feet of Jesus, clothed. And ra- sadly, rather than causing them to think, we better find out about this Jesus bloke, they would rather have a demon-possessed man they couldn't constrain in their presence and they asked Jesus to leave. A bit like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They don't really want Jesus there. He upsets their lifestyle too much. 
They did get the opportunity to follow Jesus, they just reject it, initially at any rate. And I say that because we don't know their full story either. When we read God's word, we see that Jesus tells this man to stay in the region and tell them everything that God's done. And we read that that this man went around telling them everything that Jesus has done. And if you read the book of Mark in chapter 7, verse 31, Jesus goes back into the vicinity of this area. And when he goes back there, there's a whole pile of people who already know about Jesus and want Jesus to heal. You see, this this bloke has probably done his work well. He's gone around the region telling people all that God has done, all that Jesus has done. This bloke joins dots better than other people. This man knows who Jesus is. Not just the demons knew who Jesus is. This man now knows who Jesus is and he goes around telling people that Jesus is the son of God, the one who forgives in a way that only God can, the one who heals, who operates with the power and authority of God. Luke wants us to know very clearly who that is, who Jesus is. There's so much left in the story. We're only up to Luke chapter 8. I'm going to stop there because we've got lots more to see in Luke's gospel. But what do we do with a story like that? Is it just a great entertaining story that we hope that we don't have to live out on the Sea of Galilee? Well, let me tell you how we can misuse this story and we misuse it very regularly. The way we misuse it as Christians is we, we turn it into a bit of a, um, a metaphor of life. Jesus is showing his disciples how they need to have trust in him and if they trust in him, the storms of life will rescue... Uh, sorry, if they trust in him, they will, he will rescue them from the perils or storms of life. But that's flat out not true, is it? Because these very disciples... The followers of Jesus, when Jesus rose from the dead, uh, Stephen gets stoned in Acts chapter 7. Jesus did not rescue him from the perils of life. And constantly through the New Testament, we see the reminder for God's people that following him means that life will go pear-shaped. So what is Jesus saying? We'll get onto that in a moment. Make sure you don't misuse it like this. Here's another reason why we can misuse it. Go to Luke chapter 8, verse 25. Jesus asked the disciples a good question. He asked, where is your faith? And we can misunderstand this passage by thinking that when Jesus asked, where is your faith? He means that if you had trusted me enough, then you won't get sick or hurt or drown or die. It's a bit like that first one, isn't it? It's a more personalised one, isn't it? If you would only have enough faith, then the bad things in this life won't happen to you. But that's flat out rubbish. That's not what Jesus means. For those people who have followed Jesus, in fact, for all of us here, one day we'll be stone cold dead. It could be today or tomorrow, but one day we will. And Jesus offers us to rescue for something, us for something bigger and greater. So what does Jesus mean? when he asked the disciples, where is your faith? He's not saying, if you had only trusted me, this boat would last through any storm. But he is reminding them that if he is who he claims to be, if he is the Messiah, the sovereign son of God, then they can trust the plans and purposes of God. It does not mean that they will not not drown, 
but it does mean that God's plans and purposes will come to pass. The Messiah who is sent by the Almighty God is probably not going to drown in a storm before he's finished the task for which he's sent. This story can be misused. I've only highlighted two of the common ones. What is it on about? There's two things I think this story challenges us or maybe encourages us with. It encourages us to know who Jesus is. Now, why does it encourage us to know who Jesus is? Because we've just been told that we should be people who hear and obey what Jesus says. And this story also challenges our Western mindset that thinks that materialism is the only thing there is and that the spiritual world doesn't exist. Let's unpack those two things. Who is Jesus? Well, the disciples note clearly that the wind and waves obey him. And they know who Jesus is from Psalm 100, sorry, who who has the power and authority to do that from Psalm 107. Jesus does what Yahweh alone can do. Are you wrestling with who Jesus is? Have you got a question mark when it comes to the power and authority of Jesus? Uh, Is he a good bloke? Is he a clever teacher? Is he partially man and partially God? Does Jesus really know what he's doing? Is he really worthwhile trusting? They are good, legitimate questions, by the way, but this story helps us start to answer them or continue to answer them. How does this passage help you come to a better understanding who Jesus is? Now... Because all of us are different with different questions, if you want to talk about this passage more, please feel free to get back to me. For those on live stream, you can get back to me via email. For those of us here, you can do likewise or speak to me in person. Do you already know who Jesus is? Are you a committed follower of Jesus? That is wonderful. But let me ask us some questions. Do we get too familiar with who Jesus is? Are we surprised that the disciples are fearful of Jesus being in their boat because we would just take Jesus down to the pub for a beer? You see, once the disciples put two and two together, they are afraid. They're not afraid of Jesus squashing them. They know that God is a God who loves people deeply a God who meets people where they're at. They've seen Jesus do the same. Jesus, in just a couple of stories ago, allowed a deeply sinful woman to touch her. Touch him, sorry. But we see here that Jesus is also the divine Son of God Most High, and he is to be feared also because he is holy. That is, he is perfect and pure and without sin. He is powerful. He is the judge of all. He is the one who will judge sin and evil in my life and your life. And we know what we're like. We should be fearful of Jesus, but not in the runaway sense of fearful, because we know the bigger story that the disciples didn't, but we should know who he is. I wonder if you're a Christian, have you got too familiar with Jesus? Have you got too familiar with him so that you no longer care about what he cares about 
Because, you know, when Dave was opening up God's word to us last week, we read there that we need to be people who hear and obey the word of Jesus so that we can produce the harvest that Jesus wants us to. In uh, uh, in the next passage, actually, actually, it was in this passage, Luke 8, 21, Jesus reminds us, that we need to be people who've, who put his, pract- his words into practice. That was last week's passage, sorry. Get, let me get it correctly. In Luke 9, in a couple of weeks' time, my brother and my brother are those who hear God's word and put them into practice. Do you really seek to put the word of God into practice? Because that will be a reflection of whether or not you really believe who he is. Let me ask us some questions. If you're a Christian, let me ask us some questions. Just to help us unpack whether we really believe what Jesus says. What do we, what do, we do when we, with Jesus' words when it comes to evangelism? That is telling others about what we believe about him or what Jesus has done for them. Do you replace the gospel of Jesus with morality? Do you modify the gospel of Jesus? Do you say you need Jesus plus speaking in tongues, baptism or any of the many that come around these days? Do you make the most of every opportunity to tell people about Jesus or is that just the pastor's job? Are you equipped to give a reason for the hope that you have and do you do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience? They are good questions for us to ask ourselves. When it comes to parenting, Do you want your kids to grow up to know and love and serve Jesus? Do you set them an example? Are you loving to them? Are you gracious or legalistic? Do you exasperate your children, commanding them to do what you want? When it comes to being part of a family, let's call it a family member, do you honour your parents? Do you serve your family humbly? What about the time that you use in your world? How much time did you spend on screens this last week? I'm asking these questions not because I'm thinking you guys need to hear it, because I need to hear it. How much time did you spend on screens this week? Watching shows and movies and playing games? How does that compare with your, the time that you set aside to serve God or just to read his word? Is your focus on your career? Does that mean you're too busy to serve or evangelise? Do you work 24-7, particularly on Sundays, because that's good pay? Do you meet with God's people? Are you unable to make church because you're too busy with stuff? Is, Is money and career your God? If you're retired, how do you think of your retirement? Is it all about self enjoyment? Or are you seeking to use that great privilege we have? Most people in the world don't even think of retirement. Are you thinking of using that great privilege that we have to serve God? What about your sex lives? Are you prepared to trust God with no sex before marriage? There are lots of arguments and even you can find churches that say you should, get it, you should do it. And if, you are, um, and if you are married, do you use your sex lives to serve each other? If you are married, you only have sex with your spouse, just in case you wanted that clarified. 
Those things are incredibly counterculture, aren't they? The Word of God puts it that bluntly and then asks, are we seeking to serve our own interests or the interests of others? So look at the way that you love your spouse or your brothers and sisters in Christ or your children or your parents. Last week, we were urged to be a good soil that produces a crop. Is that where your heart is? Are the pleasures of life choking you out? Are you more excited by the latest computer game or the footy grand final or some microbrewery in the Barossa than you are coming to church on Sundays or serving Jesus in your world? When it comes to studying the Word of God or reading it, what's your priority? What's your prayer life like? How do you speak to God? These are questions that ask, we ask, not because I'm not asking because I think you need to ask them any more than I need to ask them. But the answers to those questions will reflect whether or not we really understand who Jesus is. Because you, you and I will only ever be obedient to Jesus if we really understand who he is. Uh, this passage rages the whole idea of spiritual forces and if you're Western and materialistic, you think there's no such thing as demons or you've gone to the other extreme and you're so fascinated by demons that you like to watch them all the time. We are a funny culture, aren't we? Can I suggest that the spiritual forces exist? Demons exist, they do from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. Don't play with fire, you only get burnt. Kay in Southeast Asia reminds us recently that maybe not in your suburb, in your household, but there are massive levels of spiritual forces that exist in this world. Can I suggest they are just as relevant and prevalent in Adelaide? Make no mistake, they are here. You know, Satan doesn't get kept out of Australia because we're a God-fearing nation. He just keeps a low profile because we're a materialistic, atheistic nation. Don't be scared, though. Don't be unsettled by that. What do we see here? The sovereign Lord of all the universe has the power and authority to judge them. They are scared of him. Walk with him, you will have nothing to fear. Don't play with fire, don't fear them. Let's pray. Lord, you do know our hearts. We can't fool you. There are times in our life, Lord God, we are more like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law when we are more concerned with our own plans and purposes than yours. There are times in our life, Lord God, we are just like the disciples. The penny hasn't fully dropped. Lord, we pray that we'll be like that man who goes around telling everyone all that God, all that Jesus has done for us. Lord, help us to know with certainty who we are, who you are, sorry, so that we might obey you and serve you. We ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.